Hey guys. Hey everybody. I'm Kelsey. And I'm Chase. And this is Crime with a K. And it's the first serial killer episode of the summer. No, summer's June 21st. It's the first serial killer episode of... Warm weather. Warm (laughs) weather. You know what I keep... It's like stuck in my head. And I... This is like me having an inside joke with myself. You know the commercial that's like, It's gonna be a Subaru summer. If you don't know it, then I don't know. Like Subaru? Yeah, the the car. No. Maybe. You no. don't know the commercial? Uh-uh. They do it every summer where they go, It's gonna be a Subaru summer. I have it in my head of, It's gonna be a serial killer summer. Okay. If anybody gets that reference, please. We watch the different commercials. Tap one in for me. I know. Mm-hmm. You really don't know any of the ones I know. I know the Hyundai Holidays. With all the lights? All of the lights. Yeah, no. no, not even close. <laughs> I don't know that Honda. One. Honda. Where they blink? No, Honda, the car. I know. Who's blinking? The headlights. Oh, you mean like in the commercial? Yes. No, I'm saying oh, like yeah. Honda holiday sale. It's just that this. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I know yeah. that one. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and they always have that Chevy truck with the girl in the house. It's the guy, like, like the husband and the wife, and he surprises her with the car. And then she surprises him with the car. And then she's like, I actually want the truck. And he's like, what? They do that every year? Every year. I feel like that was only a one-time thing. No, I've seen that for like five years in a row. Oh. Well, surprise, this is actually a new car podcast. Yeah, that was a minute and 45 seconds of absolute gibberish. Of just nonsense. So, coffee of the day. I'm doing my coffee. Why did you smack me? (laughs) From the Coffee Fox. Okay, I'm going to do mine. No, I didn't even get to do mine. Mine is from the Coffee Fox. And I don't know. I don't think we mentioned this last time because I think you said you got a caramel macchiato. I'll have to look back and see. Well, I couldn't tell. It was only like three sips. Like, well, no, they didn't serve any flavors at the oh, Coffee no, Fox. No, I just got a straight up macchiato. Yeah. Man. See, I'm going to put a picture of it on the Instagram so you guys can see it. I got a latte with almond milk, an iced latte with almond milk. They don't have any flavors there and they have very little ice drinks. So... It wasn't my favorite coffee shop, but it is really cute. And then when Chase got his little shot of coffee, it just changed the game for him entirely. It was a shot. A shot to the heart because he didn't get the coffee he wanted. Well, I mean, I was fine. I'm not a big coffee person to begin with, but I still want to walk around looking normal. Yeah. But it's okay. (laughs) It's okay. Do you have a coffee of the day? I don't know. Did I have another coffee that weekend? Yes. I figured you would be upset that we didn't talk about it today. Which one? Just love. Oh, yeah, we went to Just Love, and they made waffles, all types of waffles, and they made other stuff, too. Yeah, like breakfast stuff. Breakfast stuff, 
And I got a coffee there. I, I think I got just like a caramel latte. Mm-hmm. Yeah. An iced caramel latte. Mm-hmm. And you liked it. Yeah, it was pretty good. Did you like yours? <laughs> yeah. And then we were... She was grumpy pants, though, because it was raining. Yeah, it was really upset. So there's really nothing I could have done to cheer her up in that moment, but at least she got a waffle. He did. He ordered me a waffle. I was really upset because I wanted to go to Tybee Island. I wanted to go to Tybee Island in Georgia, and the rain, Chase can vouch for this, it has rained on every single vacation we have taken together. And in Charlotte, if you don't live here, for most of you, I don't think you guys do, it rains every weekend. Mm Mm-hmm. In Charlotte. Yeah. So all we want is when we go on vacation, we want the weekends to not be raining. And, and it just I would say raining. 80% of every vacation it's rained and on 100% of our big vacations it's rained. So I will be an adult and admit that I cried that morning because it wasn't even just raining. It was like monsooning. Oh, it was down. Yeah. Couldn't see. And I, yeah, we, it was like really scary. We were going to go to Black Rifle Coffee. And we got on the highway, and it was so bad. It was so hard to see. That's why we pulled in just love. Yeah. It was yep. so bad. Yep. There was so, waterworks yeah. outside the car. There was waterworks inside the car. So we went to just love because Chase was trying to find me a coffee shop to make me happy. And then he got me a waffle. And I got her a waffle. It was a good waffle. It was a good waffle. Mm-hmm. And that was in Plumer, Georgia. Right? That's no, uh, Poplar. Poplar. I think it's Poplar, Georgia. I thought it was Plumer. Pooler, no, Pooler, Pooler, Georgia. Sorry. Sorry, Georgia. Pooler. It's a cute coffee shop, though. Cool little city. So, jumping into today's case, so it is a listener request. So, Critty, thank you for sending this in. This is our first serial killer request that we got this summer. Bum, bum. Dun, 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 dun. Bum, bum. Are you looking at my notes? No. What were you looking at? No. So, this one's a wild one. It is interesting. Okay. And there's going to be some some places that we've been that you'll perk up to in here. Oh. Mm-hmm. Okay. And we're sticking on the theme of Georgia. Okay. So Gary Michael Hilton was born on Friday, November 22nd, 1946 in Atlanta, Georgia. Gary was born to his father, William E. Hilton, and his mother, Cleo M. Reynolds. Gary was an only child, and he got along with his parents, but at some point throughout his childhood, they did get divorced. His family then relocated to Hialeah, Florida in 1958, and he enrolled in Miami Springs Junior High School. Gary was actually a really good student, and he had a very high IQ, But and Gary, he didn't have a bad childhood, but he didn't have a good childhood. They just kept saying it was a turbulent childhood. Okay. It wasn't very stable. Well, you have your parents get divorced and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Could cause that. Court documents do share that Gary suffered from a frontal lobe injury when he was younger, caused by a Murphy bed falling on him somehow. Oh my god. Do you know what a Murphy bed is? I don't, but... It's the beds that they fold up into the wall. Oh god. So it fell down on him. Damn. Yeah. Frontal lobe injuries are not good. Those are bad news bears. That's the lobe that you really want to protect with everything that you can because frontal lobes are important for voluntary movement, expressive language, and for managing higher level of executive functions. Executive functions refer to those collection of cognitive skills, including the capacity to plan, organize, initiate, self-monitor, and control your responses in order to achieve a goal. Frontal lobe injuries can cause impaired muscle movements, personality changes, and impulsive behavior. So they can just mess you up. Yeah. So like a lot of the podcasts I listened to about this case didn't touch on that. I think that that's really important. I think to know. that's very important yeah. to know. 
So Gary stayed out of trouble and he did focus pretty hard on school. He was put in harder classes and he excelled with his high IQ until his mom got a new boyfriend who she wound up marrying. Uh oh. Mm-hmm. His mother married his stepfather, Nilo Bag, and Gary was around eight or nine years old at this time. And that's when both his mom and his stepdad allegedly began abusing him. Oh my God. Yeah. I don't know his mom so much. I don't know if the mom's aspect was like a bystander effect where she kind of let it happen. That's gross. You know, so his father also got remarried, but they don't really talk about that. Gary noted that his stepfather would constantly abuse his mother as well. And oftentimes it was him trying to defend his mom or soften the abuse. Hmm. So Gary Hilton's criminal problems began when he was a young, angsty teen. When he was 13, Gary actually shot his stepfather in the oh, stomach. Go after him. I love it. I mean, well, mega trauma. But understandable. Gary said that he shot his stepdad because he'd taken his mother away from him. But I also read that he was abusing his mother at the time and Gary was trying to stop it. This also, it transpired because I guess his stepdad was taunting Gary saying, okay, shoot me, do it. You won't shoot me. And then picked up a mattress to shield himself. And that's when Gary shot him, which also mattresses are very heavy. So I was like, well, it's just like you're telling a 13 year old that that's freaking crazy. You're antagonizing. Yeah, you're antagonizing a 13-year-old. Yeah. So the court documents stated that the stepfather and his mother were estranged at that time, and Gary was trying to get him out of the house. Okay, good. Despite being shot in the stomach, Gary's stepfather didn't press any charges on him, which I would assume, again, because he was allegedly abusive, so maybe he didn't want to open that door. Open up a Pandora's box? Yeah. Yeah. However, his stepfather did want him sent to a mental institution for a short period of time, and he did go. But once he got out, Gary's mother refused to let him back into the what? house. What? Yeah, Ew. I, I, of course that. Yeah, I just go to this institution. Until he was about to begin school. And that's when his mother refused to take him in. She turned him away. And I don't know who Don and Mark Jeffers were, but they ended up taking him in. I, again, I couldn't find anything really on who those people were, but I'm going to assume either family friends or other people who knew him throughout the community. Yeah, somebody at yeah. the, you know, wherever. When he was 17, Gary enlisted in the United States Army, and he was stationed in West Germany as part of the Davy Crockett platoon. Oh. I know. It's a cute name. It's pretty cool, yeah. The platoon was named after the capskin-wearing King of the Wild Frontier, who young boys looked up to in the 1950s and who they were obsessed with. There were 19 men in this platoon, and their task was simply to deploy the Davy Crockett missile, which was an XM-388 nuke. Oh, wow. Okay. I I thought this was really interesting. I included all of this because I was like, that's actually a really cool mission, but also it's Uh, interesting. Very highly scary and dangerous. Yes. Apparently, according to the Brookings Institution, this was the smallest and lightest nuclear weapon ever deployed in the United States military. And it was designed for use against the Soviets. Soviets? Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Soviets. I was running out of breath. That's cool, though. Yeah. Now, the members of the Davy Crockett platoon were supposedly screened exceptionally carefully for psychological issues and their fitness. The army knew about Gary's stunt at 13 when he shot his stepdad, but they were like, you know what? It's fine. Everybody makes mistakes. Well, it's like, you know what? You came to the right place. We use guns. (laughs) Yeah. Come on, bud. 
You came to the right place. We need you to be fearless and, and honestly, yeah. To shoot other Wait, how old are you? Eighteen? Yeah, we're gonna stick you with this nuke over in Germany. Yep. Okay, big guy. Learn how to protect it. Everyone in the army called this platoon basically a suicide mission because you were basically carrying this nuke and it only had a range of about a mile. So it was known that these Davy Crockett soldiers would be blown to pieces if they ever had to set that nuclear weapon off. Oh my God. Yeah. yeah. So they sent him. Yep. Yep. Gary then volunteered to become a paratrooper because they never needed to use that nuclear weapon. Thank goodness. And he later went to school to become a pilot and a flight instructor because he loved flying. He had a huge passion for flying and he loved being up in the air, but he never really finished that. Some people believe that it was the stress of being in the army and in his specific platoon that caused Gary to have a breakdown. A few years into his service, Gary began hearing voices and soon suffered from a full-on schizophrenic breakdown. Well, with frontal lobe damage, that can probably make yep. that a lot more kind of crazy. Frontal lobe damage and schizophrenia usually comes on in your late teens, early 20s, mm-hmm. for men at least. The army then had Gary admitted into a mental hospital where they loaded him up on Thorazine. This is a drug that helps with mental illness like schizophrenia, bipolar disorder. It can even help with severe hiccups and anxiety. Oh, okay, cool. Hiccups. Yeah. Sweet. The army chose to not give Gary a Section 8 psychiatric discharge and instead had him honorably discharged. Oh, okay. That's nice. Gary was discharged in 1967 at only 21 years old, and there's no record that the army ever followed Gary throughout his civilianhood to see how he was doing or how his mental stability was. Well, yeah, because I was about to ask. I said that's good about being honorably discharged, but I wonder if, like, if he's medically discharged. They have to keep up with him. They keep up with him, and they have to pay him, like, disability. Mm-hmm. But I feel, but I wonder how, I, I'm not saying they did, but I just wonder how that worked. Like, I wonder if, the, oh, if we do it honorably. Yeah. We don't have to pay him. Because if we say like it was a psychiatric issue and we can tie these to the this war. mental breakdown back to what he had They're to gonna do. They're going to have to pay yeah. him. And they were probably like, we can yeah. easily just go honorably. I'm not saying that's what they did, but. No, but also how we treat veterans in this country it's is not, a whole yeah. other no. issue. So it was noted that when Gary got out of the army, he was a really good looking guy. He was very athletic. He liked to run long distances. And at this point he had a quote genius level IQ. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. It was once he got out of the army, though, that Gary was having a lot of trouble holding a steady job and maintaining a romantic and platonic relationship. He was immediately all around struggling right when he got out of the army. Okay. Makes sense because nothing happened while he was in the army. Right. Gary bounced around the South from the 70s and the 80s. He found himself in a few marriages. The first was actually while he was still in the army. He married a woman named Ursula from Germany and he brought her back to the United States. Once she got here, they soon divorced. Oh my god, that'd be awful. Yeah. Then, when he was 23 years old in 1969, he married a woman named Sue that he married in DeKalb DeKalb County, Georgia. He did marry a third time, and it's alleged that one of the women, I don't know which one they've kept her unnamed, but she had two kids from a previous marriage who he allegedly sexually assaulted. Okay. That's not confirmed. So I'm not going to go more into that, but that has been said in court records. Well, and it would make sense based off his past. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And there was somebody in his high school past who came out and said that Gary once confessed to them that he was in an incestuous relationship with his mother while he was a little boy. Okay. Again, that's not confirmed. Yeah. yeah, I don't know about the high school friend that just wants to come out of the woodworks, but we'll see. 
Apparently it was somebody who dated him, but again, like take those two things with a grain of salt because they can't be confirmed nor denied. So it was also around this time that Gary started to build or rebuild his criminal record. He was involved in theft, burglaries, DUIs, drug offenses, assaults, carrying a gun without a license, 21 counts of solicitation. There were probably some bad checks in there. There always are. But the bad checks, the bad checks. But in addition to the hefty legal issues, Gary also developed a strong love for the outdoors. Oh, okay. He's I love like, how he keeps up with his hobbies, though. <laughs> He's like, I'm going to steal your belongings. I'm literally going down such a downward spiral, but at least we can uh, I go for a hike. Yeah, yeah, let's go for a hike. So friends and family claimed that Gary was obsessed with the outdoors. He knew everything and anything about hiking and mountains and anything that had to do with God's green earth. He also had a dog named Dandy, who he'd go hike with and travel with. Gary was also known as a pathological liar. Mm. He would just be one of those people who would lie about things that would make you kind of be like, well, what was like, why are you like, for what? What is the purpose of that? I would be like, oh, I love that song. What's the song? Uh, I don't know. No, no, no. It would be his, in this case, it was, yeah, I have MS and I only have six years left to oh, live. Oh, like extreme. Yeah, no, like, yeah, not just being like, yeah, I love cheese and crackers. And then when it's like put on the table, you're like, I actually hate cheese and crackers. Oh, it's so like, yeah. like big ones, yes. not tiny ones. No, like medical issues and like, like yeah. I have a fake leg. He... Gary's alive and well today, so when he was telling people that in 1990... Made be- people he, question he him. He beat yeah. the odds. Yeah, he did actually... A con- should we be congratulating him? Yeah. So mm. now prior to Gary becoming a serial killer, the worst that you could say about him was that he was just an oddball. He was known as a con man and a petty thief. But that all changed when Gary went to a doctor and a Georgia physician prescribed Gary Ritalin despite the fact that Gary did not suffer from ADD. Hmm. Okay. Ritalin works by increasing the amount of the neurotransmitter dopamine in a region of the brain called the striatum, which is related to motivation, action, and cognition. Dopamine is a chemical messenger that's used by nerve cells to communicate with each other, and it plays a role in how we feel pleasure and the activation of reward in the brain when we perform certain behaviors. People without ADHD use Ritalin as a study enhancer to perform better on tests, but that's not proven whether or not that works. Common side effects of Ritalin in adults without ADHD include increased risk-taking behaviors, increased impulsivity, mood swings, excitability and energy, disrupted sleep cycles or trouble sleeping, extreme reduction in appetite, problematic weight loss, and depressed moods and decreased anxiety. So cocaine. A lot of people believe that this is Gary's essentially turning point because it's very unlikely for a serial killer to begin killing in their 50s and 60s, and that's when he started taking this. It's also noted that after Gary began taking the Ritalin, his behavior and personality drastically changed. Yeah. I think that that's important. I think the frontal lobe issue and I think that the Ritalin are two important factors in this case. Just, yeah, he has... Like, yeah, think of, like, if... (laughs) Massive trauma, then maybe PTSD from the war. All of it goes undiagnosed. Mm-hmm. And he's basically floating around, living a life, uh, trying to function. And then you basically give him, like, speed. Yeah. Yeah. So Gary had been working for John Tabor as a tin man back in Georgia for years. 
John Tabor ran a home siding business in the Atlanta area, and John had not only employed Gary, but also provided him with a home on one of his properties. Damn, nice guy. Soon after he began working here, in 2007, Gary began taking the Ritalin. John has come out to say that Gary's entire demeanor changed after taking that. Where was he getting it? The physician. A doctor prescribed it to him. Oh, I I, I thought you were saying that, like, you can't get prescribed... You, they try. They don't really prescribe it anymore, especially in kids. Oh, so like, what was he saying to the doctor? Yeah, like, um, what are you, I mean, I guess it was probably easy to get it, but he probably was just like, I'm having a fo- hard time f- focusing. Yeah, I think probably that, or I'm hearing voices, or. Oh, I thought you were just saying like someone without ADHD taking that medicine would he, be bad. I didn't know that. Like the. No, Gary wasn't. He didn't have ADHD or ADHD. Yeah, no, that's what I thought you were just trying to say. And oh. you were saying that he was taking this medicine, it was making him go crazy. I didn't know that. The... No, his doctor was prescribing oh, it to him God. and he so didn't he... have these. That's why I was like, these are the symptoms of. So he was just going in and getting. Yeah. Drug after drug. And the, and he, the, like, he's not doing anything wrong. The doctor's prescribing yeah. it to him. Like, it's I mean. Le- it's a legal drug dealer. Yeah. So um, Gary became irritable, extremely confrontational. He would act out, and there were several times where Gary would threaten his boss slash landlord with violence. John basically told Gary, like, sir, you're not really aligning with our core values here at the siding company, so I'm going to have to have you dismissed from this situation, and you need yeah, to sorry, get buddy. on. You got yeah. two weeks. Yep. Gary then jetted off in his Chevy Astro van with his dog, Dandy. And at this point, Gary was pretty sick of Georgia, and he decided to migrate north to North Carolina to go explore some national parks. Oh, well, we got those here. We do. The entire time he was on this journey, he was continuing to take a lot of Ritalin. Gary wound up heading to Pisgah National Forest in North Carolina. Oh, we've been there. Mm -hmm. That's cool. Well, I don't like that he was there, but no, been there. It was at this time that Gary found his first two victims, John and I. Oh, God. Yeah. Oh, God. We jump in fast. And we were there. Oh, just wait. You're going to... Okay, yeah. yeah. John and Irene Bryant, a senior citizen couple who'd been married for 55 years, Gary came across them hiking, or basically on the walking trail. John Bryant, who went by Jack, was 81, and Irene Bryant was 84. On October 21st, 2007, John and Irene met their end when they ran into Gary Hilton on the hiking trail in Pisgah National Forest. The Bryants were avid hikers who lived in Horseshoe, North Carolina. John, like I said, went by Jack. So Jack and Irene parked their maroon Ford Escape at the Yellow Gap Road near U.S. Route 276 to head off on their hike. Jack, just a little bit about them. Jack had actually hiked the entire Appalachian Trail, so they were avid hikers. Irene was a veterinarian and specialized in large animals, and Irene was one of the first female vets in Montana. No way. Yeah. That's pretty cool. And when the couple had their four children, she stopped practicing to to stay home and take care of the kids, but she wanted to keep learning, so she kept taking more classes and getting more degrees. (sighs) That's crazy, but that is cool. That's That's badass. Their daughter, Holly, said, quote, she gave up her practice because I think she liked going to school better. She was a scientist at heart. She had an extensive insect collection and she loved gardening. She was a very interesting character. My father said she wasn't cut out of the cookie cutter. She was unique. Mm-hmm. The couple also loved traveling oh, the world. Oh, that's so sad. I, I, yeah. And if you look up a picture of them, I... They're so cute. No, yeah. I was. It was hard for me to... 
The couple also loved traveling the world, and they wanted to instill in their kids to go see the world. So while the kids were growing up, they would bring them to all these amazing places around the world, like New Zealand and Switzerland. And they always sent Christmas cards to everyone who was a town worker to thank them for all that they did for the year for keeping their town safe, clean, and happy. And Jack owned a practice, and he, every year if the interest rates raised or, you know, with inflation in the economy, Jack never raised his prices. And when Uh-oh. people would come to him and say, like, you should raise your prices, like, you can charge more. He was like, I don't want to. I just want to help people. He's like an Arizona sweet tea. They never had, they ever raised their prices on their sweet tea. They don't? It's a dollar. Oh, I it's always been a dollar. Oh, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. He won't raise the price. It's been a dollar since I was a kid. Oh. Jack suffered from arthritis of the spine, and doctors at one point advised him to cut back on the physical physical activity, especially hiking, and his response was, no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I'm just going to... Hey, you want to get your life turned around? No, I'm going to hike. Okay. Quote, he said, if I can't hike, that's what I live for. He's a very strong-willed person. He had some medical problems, but he wouldn't allow it to hold him back, and he kept slogging away. When it came time to retire, Jack Bryant did a methodical study on where to retire, and they chose to settle in western North Carolina because of its natural beauty and a wealth of nearby hiking trails. In the early 1990s, they moved to Horseshoe, just outside of Hendersonville, buying a one-story brick home on a cul-de-sac in a quiet neighborhood. Their neighbor Matt said, quote, They were the best neighbors you could ever want. They were self-effacing and gracious. They liked the theater and music, and if they had tickets to a show that they couldn't attend, they'd call and offer them to us. Oh, they're the curious old people. I know. The couple hiked almost weekly, typically going on day hikes in the Pisgah Forest, and another neighbor said, quote, they took the trails that we would never do. The couple also traveled overseas all the time, whenever they had a chance, and it was noted, quote, they kept bags packed with everything they would need, right down to their toothbrushes. Jack would search the internet for seats on the airlines offering cheap last-minute seats, and they often just took off at a moment's notice. <laughs> so they're freaking awesome. They're, oh my god, that's what, I saw the photo of them and I just started crying because I was like, ugh, like I don't, I just don't understand why it happens to the good people, but... Quote, they just loved to be together. They would wake up with the sun shining and take the opportunity to go hiking, and that was fine with them. Friends and family didn't hear from Jack and Irene for two weeks after they went off on that hike, so family members reported the couple missing to the Henderson County Sheriff's Office, and the Sheriff's Office quickly launched their search of the Bryants, which consisted of more than 30 volunteers, cadaver dogs, and a helicopter. Investigators also skimmed through the couple's phone records, and they learned that on the day the couple went missing, October 21st, Irene had attempted to call 911, but the signal was lost and the call was dropped. Whoa. Yeah. Then, on November 10th, 2007, the investigators and the search party located the body of a woman on Barnet Branch Trail. Investigators believed that this body belonged to Irene Bryant, But in order to be certain, they sent her body off to the medical examiner's office in Chapel Hill to perform an autopsy. The body was found several yards from where the Bryants had parked their car to go off on their hike. Oh, God. Wait, so October 21st? Yeah. It took until November 10th to find a body. Yeah. And it was near their car. Yeah. And it was so badly beat up you couldn't identify them. Mm Mm-hmm. Seems weird. Three days later, on November 13th, the female body was positively identified as Irene Bryant and it was determined that she had been bludgeoned to death with a sharp, blunt instrument. Also remember, the family didn't know they were missing for like a week and a half. Yeah. Oh. 
Oh, true. Yeah. True, true. So that aligns with... True. Investigators now begin investigating this as a homicide that took place on federal land, which means that the FBI gets involved. The FBI went on to launch their own investigation and shared that there was an award of $10,000 to whoever could provide any information leading to the killer. The same time that the FBI was getting involved, it was learned that an ATM card that belonged to the Bryants had been used on October 22, 2007 at 7.37 p.m. to withdraw $300 from an ATM in in Ducktown, Tennessee, which is about three hours west of Pisgah Forest. Yeah, right over the border, probably. Mm Mm-hmm. The surveillance footage from that ATM shows an older Caucasian man wearing a yellow rain jacket where the hood was pulled fully over his face, covering any facial features. Investigators didn't believe for a second that it was Jack who killed his wife and took off. They believed that Jack had been abducted by whoever killed his wife and was still considered a missing person. Then, on February 3rd, 2008, a guy named Mark Waldrop, who was out hunting, accidentally discovered a skull Mm. in Nantahala National Forest which was just off a service road known as the Switchbacks. Nantahala National Forest is in Bryson City, North Carolina. (gasps) Oh, we've been there. Yeah, Chase took me there for my birthday. Yeah, not the best. To go hiking. It rained the entire time. Boom. We hiked Smoky Mountains in the rain, which is about an hour and a half west of Pisgah National Forest. Mark immediately called the police, as you should if you accidentally encounter a skull, And upon a more thorough investigation, they found a pelvis and a spine located 20 yards from the skull. Okay, but this is a totally different area than his wife. Yeah. There was no clothing and no identification near the remains to identify these remains, so the bones were sent off to the medical examiner in Chapel Hill. After two days, these remains were positively identified as John Jack Bryant. Mm -hmm. So jumping back a couple months... On December 3rd, 2007. So just remember, he murdered the the Bryants in October. Jack's body was found in February, so now we're jumping back to December. Okay. December 3rd, 2007, 46-year-old Cheryl Hodges Dunlap, a resident of Crawfordville, Florida, did not appear for her job at the Florida State University in Tallahassee, where she was working as a nurse. Cheryl was born on November 18th, 1961, in Tallahassee, Florida, and she was married with two grown children named Mike and Jake. And Cheryl was a really good person. She volunteered a lot. She would travel to volunteer, especially with her nursing. She worked as a Sunday school teacher, and she donated her free time helping with hurricane relief. Yeah, so she was all about giving, nursing, volunteering, caring. Yeah. Yeah. All of the people involved in this were... Like good people. Like great people. Exceptional people. Now, Except one. Yeah. Except Gary. This is like the fourth serial killer we've covered that's named Gary, too. Gary. I'm having an issue with these Garys. I know. I haven't really... I don't know a Gary. I do. You do? Mm-hmm. Who? He's a snail. No, that doesn't count, Cheese. <laughs> Yeah, it does. I got a snail friend. His name's Gary. He lives under the sea. Okay. (laughs) Owned by a sponge. You seen him? Okay. So the day that Cheryl had disappeared, she'd spoken to a friend earlier in the day, and the two made plans to have dinner together. Before the dinner, during the day, Cheryl wanted to go out and do something. So she was like, oh, I'll go head into Leon Sinks in that area, and I'll read my book. The area that she was headed to was in the Apalachicola National Forest in southern Leon County in Florida. This Leon Sinks area is wicked pretty. It has lots of whirlpools and it has that turquoise water and it has some rocks that overlook the little pools that you can sit on. 
So Cheryl went to the Leon Sinks, and this is where she was last seen reading her book. She was seen by another couple, Vicky and Michael Shirley, around 1.30 p.m. on December 3rd. The couple later said that she was wearing a casual outfit, a sweater and some jeans, and she was just carrying her book. So she was really just going out there to get some reading in and just enjoy some nature before dinner with a friend. Oh, so more nice things. Mm -hmm. Cheryl did not show up to dinner with her friend that night. And then the next day, she did not show up to church and then didn't show up to her shift. Of course. This behavior was completely unusual for Cheryl, as it usually is. Her colleagues reported her missing on the following day, on December 4th, after her abandoned car, a white Toyota Camry, was located north of the county line. Yeah, so he's taking them places. Ugh, gross. Yeah, you'll know why. Oh, I have no doubt, Mr. Gary. One of Cheryl's friends, Tanya, had shown up to Cheryl's house and her dog was there. But she and her car were not, and then the abandoned car was found. The car was found with all the tires slashed, and police determined that someone had intentionally slashed all four of the car's tires with a bayonet. There was also- A bayonet? Yes. My God, okay, George Washington. As we all just casually yeah. carry those around. My homeboy. There was also a parking ticket on the windshield from December 1st. Police checked her bank records and found that Cheryl had cashed a check at her bank on December 1st at 11.17 a.m. before she'd gone out for her reading hike for the day. About five days later, a search party of around 180 people was organized to help locate Cheryl. And despite initially being unable to find anything, the members really hoped that they would locate Cheryl Dunlap alive. But then, on December 16th, 2007, Ronnie Rents, a hunter passing through the woods in the, Appalachia, the Appalachicola National Forest with his dogs, saw buzzards circling an area and went over to it. He discovered the decapitated, decomposing body of a Caucasian woman and immediately called the police to report it. It's such a guy thing to do. What, call the police on no, a go body? No, look up and go, huh, I see a bunch of vultures. I think I'm going to go look at it. Yeah, that actually is a very guy thing to do because I feel like girls would be like, mm. If it's dead, I'm probably not, I probably should go over there. And guys would be like, ooh. I thought you meant call the police when they find a body. I'm like, I feel like. Yeah, guys normally like don't do the right thing. So the female body was found in the Appalachicola National Forest off of a forest road, and she was partially covered by tree branches and brush. She was missing her hands and her head. Oh, God. Investigators off the bat were unsure whether this body belonged to Cheryl Dunlap, but the body was sent off to the state medical examiner in Florida. The medical examiner confirmed that the body did belong to Cheryl Dunlap through DNA profiling using thigh muscle samples. Oh, that's kind of cool. Yeah. Because they had no other way to identify her. Yeah. The medical examiner was Dr. Anthony Clark, and he noted a big bruise on Cheryl's back that he said took place from someone hitting her while she was still alive. He estimated that she'd been in the woods for 7 to 15 days, and he put her death from December 5th to the 8th. We learn later that Gary had kept Cheryl alive for a couple days. Her hands were removed post-mortem with a sharp instrument, which we assume is from the bayonet. Yeah. The cause of death could not be determined, but it was listed as violent homicide. So police classified her death as a homicide and began looking for a suspicious green van seen in the area around the time that Cheryl had disappeared and was driven by a man who had used her ATM card five times in Tallahassee, Florida, withdrawing $700 from her bank account. There... Again, again with the money. Mm -hmm. It's such a, like a low blow to do that. That's all it's about. That's all you'll learn in the end. Sorry, I'm spoiling this. Yeah, don't, yeah, okay. It's all it's all about money. 
than for three hundred dollars, seven hundred dollars. This isn't. That's their what their lives were worth. Mm-hmm. Wild. There were also two decline withdrawals because the person was trying to go over the daily limit for Cheryl's withdrawals. The police pulled up the surveillance footage and saw a slender Caucasian man in a dress shirt and a tape mask. What's it? What? Look it. Look it up. Like he taped his like bot like, face. It is. If I, if you can look that up right now, look up Gary Hilton tape mask. Think of that as you're driving by an ATM at night and tell me you wouldn't think that the purge is happening or top oh, left. Wow. Wow. That is something. It is a ginormous head. It's like duct tape. It looks like the New England Patriots mascot. Yeah. That's his other face is not much prettier either. Gary's. Yeah. Yeah. He's a frightening. He's a very frightening man. They call him the slender man. Oh, good. So police also noted that this man was using a card, was using Cheryl's card, but was using the wrong pin. Police did stake out that ATM on December 5th, but Gary never showed up again. Of course. Over the next few days, hundreds of tips came flooding into the police, some of whom talked about a strange homeless looking man with a dog who was driving a green 2001 Chevy Astro van, but this never led to an arrest. Several people saw Cheryl in the area, and a woman named Celeste Hutchins saw Gary on December 1st at the Crawfordville Highway where Cheryl's car was found. Celeste testified to seeing Gary rummaging through the white Toyota Camry that was parked on the side of the road that later we found out belonged to Cheryl. Yeah, Cheryl, okay. On December 10th, Loretta Mayfield actually spoke to Gary Hilton, and she said that he was wearing the blue and white striped shirt that you see in that ATM footage. He also had a big holster on his belt that had a big hunting knife in it. Loretta saw Gary at a convenience store off of Crawfordville Highway. Then, on December 18th, at a convenience store in Bristol, Florida, Teresa Johnson saw Gary, and he walked right up to her and said, quote, You look just like that girl, Cheryl Dunlap. Oh, God. And that's just too bad about that girl. And walked away. Like, you know how scary that would be to think back on that after that happened? Yep. And be like, I could have been his next one? Yep. Oh my god, that would just terrify you. That would keep me up for nights. Yeah, I would need extensive therapy after that. Yes. Investigators found what they believed to be the remains of Cheryl's hands and her head about several miles away from where her body was found. They were burned beyond any recognition or ability to test in a fire pit at a campsite. They were burned to the point where there was no mitochondrial DNA left in there to test, but they were small adult female hands, which Cheryl was known to have. Hmm. And Gary was seen near this campsite being given a ticket for unlawfully walking around here at this time. So it is most likely Cheryl's remains. Oh, God. Yeah. During all of this, Gary got a bit homesick and decided to leave Florida and head back up to Georgia. Oh, okay. Yeah, just, you know, a little road trip. He's like, I didn't like the Florida humidity. I got enough money, so I'm going home. Meredith Hope Emerson was 24 years old, and she went out hiking on New Year's Day of 2008. She went to hike Blood Mountain in the Appalachians in Georgia at 1 p.m. Blood Mountain is next to another mountain named Slaughter Mountain. Some believe the name came from a bloody battle between the Cherokee and the Muscogee Creek long before white settlers arrived in the area. Other theories derive the name came from a red lesion or a Catawaba rhododendron. Grow. A cat- <laughs> what? She's not into plants. <laughs> okay, she doesn't like plants. Catawba rhododendron growing on the rocky summit. Got it. A blood mountain is actually the tallest peak in the Appalachians in Georgia. Oh, okay. 
So Meredith was bringing her black lab Ella with her on this hike, and she was never seen again. Mm. Meredith was born on June 20th, 1983 in Charleston, South Carolina to Suzanne Mm. and Dave Emerson and raised in Holly Springs, North Carolina, and then over and raised in Longmont, Colorado. Wow. So traveled everywhere. A little bit of everything. Meredith graduated from the University of Georgia with honors with a degree in French, and she even traveled abroad over to France. Go dogs. After college, Meredith got a job in marketing, and she was excelling in her career. During this time, she had a boyfriend named Steve and was living in Beaufort, Georgia with her friend Julia. Meredith was a really big outdoors gal. She loved to walk, she loved to hike, she was outgoing, she was happy, and she just loved being in nature. She adopted her dog, Ella, and they always went hiking together. Oh, of course. Another good person. I know. The night before this was New Year's Eve, and she'd gone out to a party with all of her friends and her boyfriend, and her and Steve actually made plans to hang out together the next day. Meredith spoke to Steve on New Year's Day at 11 a.m. on the phone, telling him that she and Ella were going on a hike, but she didn't ever say where. Steve later said that he was in a bad mood that day and kind of rushed Meredith off the phone and gave her a little lip, which he then later on would say that he struggled with since since this was the last interaction they ever had. Oh, God. That would literally haunt me. That's more therapy. Yep. Meredith left a note for her roommate, too, saying that she was going on a hike with Ella, but again, she didn't say where. It was a beautiful day to hike. It was actually noted as just an oddly beautiful day to hike since it was in January in Georgia. A man named Bill Clawson saw Meredith hiking on the trail on Blood Mountain headed upwards towards the peak. He noted that she was wearing a lavender zip-up with black leggings, and at one point, he saw a man walking with Meredith. Now, Bill noticed this because Meredith arrived in the parking lot at the same time as him, and he noticed that she was alone. The other thing was that this man was notably older than Meredith and was carrying a police baton and some dog treats. What? Yeah. Bill said that on the way down, he saw the man again, but he was alone. Bill said that this guy was glaring at him through the trees, like trying to hide, but also looking at Bill dead in the eyes. So Bill was walking down and and this person's like in the woods. Ew, I would be so scared. Bill thought that the guy was like peeing, like trying to hide in the woods and like, like looking at him while he was peeing. So he was like, okay, that's really odd and just kept going. Another guy, Seth Blackenship, was also coming down the mountain at this time. And he said that he was finding things as he was walking down on the trail And he was collecting them because he thought that they were things that had fallen out of somebody's backpack. Oh, God. Yeah. So he was picking them up and he brought them down to the trail office because he was like, hey, and if anybody comes back looking for this stuff, it's all right here. He brought down dog treats, a police baton, a silver hair clip, a couple of water bottles, and a pair of sunglasses. Oh, God. It's later confirmed that all of this belonged to Meredith. Yeah. Bill said that he noticed Seth and thought, quote, That man was walking with that girl, carrying that baton, and now that man is not with that girl, and this guy has it, and the girl's nowhere to be found. So that's really weird. Yeah, absolutely. During that hike, Steve calls Meredith to apologize because he felt bad with how he kind of rushed her off the phone earlier. Oh, God. But Meredith didn't answer. So the day started to go on, and she never called Steve back. Julia, her roommate, was also noticing that Meredith had yet to come home and come back to the house. So she thought that Meredith had finished the hike and then gone over to Steve's house. 
Julia calls Steve just to confirm that Meredith was there. And Steve said, no, she's not. She just told me she's going on a hike and I can't get in touch with her. Oh, my God. I would break my heart. Because you know at that point you're like, something's yes. wrong. And like you guys, the last conversation was an argument. Yeah. The two of them called Meredith's work and they confirmed that Meredith wasn't there either. Her work confirmed that they also couldn't get in touch with her. Then they called Meredith's parents and they hadn't heard from Meredith. A family friend, Peggy Bailey, was the one who went and reported Meredith missing. Peggy Bailey was the family friend and she pretty much handled all of Meredith's missing and press and things like that. I think because as her parents, they couldn't handle that, which I don't know how any parent does. Friends and family immediately went out to search the hiking trails, but again, Meredith didn't tell anybody what mountain, so they were actually guessing what mountain she had gone to. Yeah. Like, so, like, and that could literally just take so much time. Yeah. Later on, due to this, her friends and family actually started an organization that educates hikers and anybody to be really specific in the notes that they leave if they're going out to do something, which this is a good PSA and I'm not trying to mother you, but this is a good PSA to everyone. If you ever even go out for just a walk or a run, anything where you're alone, always leave a note saying that the time you left and where you're going my mom actually did this to us when we were growing up and now i do it with chase like you can even back me up i did it to you today mm-hmm. and what would happen is i would walk in from school and there'd be a note on the counter that would say like went for a run left at 12 53 i'm running five miles i'm starting on south street i'm going to elm street and i'm ending on 106 so that way if anything happened to her mm-hmm. we would be like this is the time she left this is the route she ran and she was only doing five miles And now with Chase, I do my little five-mile walks. I say, I'm starting my walk right now. I'm doing five miles at this park. Yep, I know where she's going. Mm -hmm. So just a little keep yourself safe. Um, Finally, Meredith's family and friends find her car at Blood Mountain. They call in the investigators to come search there because everybody at this point was scattered. And they couldn't even start the search until the next morning because of how bad the weather had gotten and how cold it was and how late it was. The National Forest Service rangers even came in to help search the area since the family didn't know the dense terrain. They also learned the next morning that there were items that were turned in from Seth and those did belong to Meredith. Yeah. So Officer John Cagle was the supervising officer for Meredith's case and witnesses began coming forward about the strange man that they'd seen with Meredith on that hiking trail. All witnesses said that this man also had a dog, a little tan dog, which we now know is Dandy. Then, the investigators received a tip from a guy, and this guy said that he thought he knew who the guy was that was being described as last being seen with Meredith. Based on the features of this man that police were looking for, this caller believed that this was one of his old employees. Oh. The guy on the phone was John Tabor, Gary Hilton's old boss. Oh, no way. Mm -hmm. John said that he believed that this was that this man was described as one of his old employees, Gary Michael Hilton. John said that he'd known Gary for over a decade. His features matched up very well to the description. He also drove a green van and he had a little tan dog named Dandy. Boom. John said that Gary also loved hiking and the outdoors and he knew Blood Mountain very well. And he often carried weapons while he hiked typically an old police baton oh gosh he's just feeding it to him and then john's like do you also want the license plate of the van because i have that (laughs) boom and he gave that over to police so the rangers at the scene also said that they'd run into gary hilton several times at blood mountain and they said that they usually reported 
they usually got reports that he would follow people or threaten violence to people or be very confrontational on the hike. And it's like, Gary, people are just trying to have, have a nice a walk. hike. Leave like, people alone. God. So the rangers shared with police that Gary had been quite a little pest at Blood Mountain, but they had Gary's photo. So Gary's photo was then shared with all the news outlets and pushed out to the public. Well... Florida authorities got word of this, and they reached out to Georgia investigators. They said that they were also investigating the murder of a hiker, and there were a lot of similarities in their cases and the case that they were currently investigating. Then, these Florida authorities (laughs) also shared that North Carolina investigators were also investigating the murder of two hikers in a case that shared a lot of similarities as both the Florida and the Georgia murders. And so they thought... Boom. No. Now you're gonna do. Hey boys, we got a case. Hey boys, we're... no, I just I, you can't you can't say it because then oh. I have no pizzazz. Oh, okay. We're up to something. Oh gosh. See, Goodness. see how bad that was. I was not prepared. Georgia did respond and come out though by saying that they were investigating this incident at Blood Mountain as an isolated homicide, and they were like, "We don't really, we don't really want to be bothered with your." Yeah, they're like, "Look, we found it first, yeah. so uh, fuck off." Yeah. But police in North Carolina and Florida were like, look, we're really not going to take no for an answer here. Come on, dude. Yeah. We need you. Police in North Carolina at this point had believed that the blunt force trauma on Irene's head was from a baton. So during these three trying to piece things together, Meredith's debit card is starting to be used. Oh, good. He doesn't even care. No, he doesn't. On January 1st at 7.05 p.m., later in the day of her disappearance, someone attempted to use the debit card at the Appalachian Community Bank in Blairsville, Georgia, with the wrong PIN number. Oh my gosh. Yep. So he's just sitting there trying to type away at any number you can figure out. Oh no, you'll know why. You'll know why. Then, several more attempts were made to get money with that card at Bank of America, 60 miles away in Gainesville, Georgia. Then again, in Canton, Georgia, at Regions Bank, 80 miles away. All of these were failed attempts with wrong PIN numbers with Meredith's card. (laughs) I bet you that frustrated the hell out of him. Yep. Investigators at this point realized that Meredith was giving her kidnapper the wrong PIN number and wrong bank to stay alive. Oh. She was stalling. Yeah. She was trying to create a paper trail, hoping that police would flag all of these attempts and come track her down. Oh, kick-ass woman. Mm Mm-hmm. She was buying herself time, saying that she forgot her pin or forgot the bank. And Gary, what he would have to do is tie Meredith to a tree in the woods and he would have to go to this ATM. So what she would do is use this time to try and escape and get out alive because they were in the woods. So he'd have to travel to these towns and these banks. When investigators learned this later, they actually were even more devastated because she was doing everything she could to stay alive. And they learned that Gary had kept Meredith alive for four days while trying to get her PIN number. Yeah. that's That keeps you up at night. More trauma. More therapy. More therapy. Yeah. The investigators learned later on that Gary actually really enjoyed Meredith's company and he really liked her and he enjoyed his conversations with her. Then police got a call that a dog had wandered into a grocery store in Cumming, Georgia, 70 miles away. This dog was Ella, Meredith's Aww. black lab. I know. It was also at this point that police were being notified by people that Gary Hilton was calling them asking for money. Why? Because he couldn't get any from Meredith. So Holy he was like, crap, I'll just this dude is so people. desperate. Yep. 
The police realized that he was never able to get any money out of Meredith, and he used these calls to try and tra- and they used these calls to try and track down his location. Gary's latest call came from a payphone in Cumming, Georgia, that was right across the street from the grocery store that the dog had wandered into. Mm. Oh wow! So police contacted the gas station where that payphone was, and they confirmed that yes, they'd seen Gary Hilton there, and he was emptying out items from the green Astro van into a dumpster next to the gas station. So at this part point, an alert went out to the, on the van, basically the PIN number, the license plate, and around 8 p.m. that night, police get a call from someone claiming that there was a match to the van that police were looking for, and the guy matching Gary's description at a car wash giving the van a wash. The guy who called said, do you want me to grab him and hold him until you get here? And the police were like, oh, well, no, well. And the guy just tackled Gary and held him down until police got no there. No way. Yeah. <laughs> police were like, maybe you could just, he's like, no, it's fine. No, fuck it. I got this. I want to be a hero. Arrest. Let's yeah. do this. Mm-hmm. I've been waiting my whole life. So police show up. Gary's in civilian custody. They take him and then police go search that dumpster where Gary was seen throwing things away. In the dumpster, police find a bag that had a woman's black leather wallet that contained an ID that belonged to Meredith Emerson. Mm. They also found a ton of different like things that would be in someone's wallet belonging to Meredith, like cards, ID, different things like that. A lavender Felice jacket. Felice. Felice. Felice Navidad. <laughs> Felice Navidad. A lavender fleece jacket covered in dirt, hair, and blood. Another sweatshirt that was soaked in blood. A discarded parking ticket that had Gary's name on it, chains, and rope that also had blood on it. You're not even parking your ticket and paying your tickets. Nope. Gary had publicly and shamefully dumped his kill kit in the dumpster. Then, when he was taken into police custody, he read them his Miranda rights. Oh, okay. Makes sense. Uno reverse. Yeah. Wait, what? He's like, I'm bad to the bone. I've been through this. I'm going to give you the reverse card. You have the right to no, remain silent. No, I have the right to remain silent. That's Ooh. what he did. They were like, great, thank you. Police searched the van. Meredith was nowhere to be found, and they found giant blood stains on the sliding van door and the mats in the back. They also found hair and blood on the seats in the back. Once he was taken into custody at the police station, um, the U.S. Attorney's Office in North Carolina investigators from the sheriff's office in leon county florida and the fbi from quantico were going to have a meeting at the georgia office the police office so they could compile all of their information and file all of their charges against gary hilton nice the death penalty was taken off the table in georgia boo it's because so he would tell the police where meredith's body was okay fair her family really wanted her body as we all would and they agreed to the deal to have the death penalty taken off of his sentencing in order to bring her body home gary told investigators that meredith would be found deceased in the dawson forest under a pile of leaves and brush not buried gary also referred to meredith as it and the conversation went the police said quote okay so is she wrapped in anything he said quote no it isn't they said is she clothed he said no it isn't they said is she intact and he said no it isn't oh my god what a psycho gary tells detectives that meredith's head will be missing and he tells them that he moved her head for forensic reasons because there were fibers in her hair the detectives then ask gary where meredith's head will be and gary says quote i should mention there's clothing there too if you put a dog on it you will come up like that i apologize to both you guys it's been trying for you 
I'm sure these cases are emotionally wrenching, (laughs) but that's your damn job. And then he burst out laughing. But I think, Kelsey thinks, if you don't actually tell investigators where the body is, then that deal should be off the table. Absolutely. That's not, that's a half answer. It is a half answer. I don't think you should say, oh, it's out in Dawson Forest. No, you tell me exactly, exactly where, it's where it is and where the head is and everything. I don't understand that. So I would be like, you have to be exactly specific because he's like, oh, if you put dogs on the clothes, it'll find the head. That's no, not helping me. That's not it. Yeah. So investigators did go search the Dawson Forest. And after searching for a bit, they did find Meredith's body. Gary did have to come out to the scene and help investigators find her head. The scene allegedly smelled like bleach and they saw that a tree nearby had some blood on it. So the medical examiner determined that Meredith's cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head and her head was removed post-mortem. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Weirdo. In January of 2008, Gary Michael Hilton pled guilty to the murder of Meredith Emerson as this was the deal that he'd made with the investigators. Susan Emerson, Meredith's mom, spoke at his indictment and said, quote, I'm not sorry that the death penalty was taken off the table. That would have been an easy way out. Let him stay alive and slowly rot. God may choose to forgive him. However, he is not worth the time and energy it would take me to do so. My focus will remain on all the good that Meredith stood for and still does. Dave Emerson, Meredith's dad, said, quote, My daughter was a shining light in our lives, and now we are left with a hole in our hearts that will never heal. I feel no punishment is too severe for Mr. Hilton. Only pray that he suffers immensely for his heinous acts and that his fellow inmates recognize his evil and malevolence for mankind and treat him with the appropriate measures. So, when it came to the Bryant's investigation, investigators took DNA from the four children. They matched it to the blood in Gary's van. Oh. That blood matched John's blood. And on February 5th, 2008, skeletal remains were found in Macon County, North Carolina by a hunter. They identified the remains by DNA, and it came back as John Jack Bryant. No way. Yeah. So they ended up doing finding him? Yeah, and he was also decapitated. What is up with that? It's so he weird. says he did it to forensic forensic reason? reasons to not be identified, but I think there was. More but they never than found that. the body, so it's like it's just a little more. Yeah, it's a little deeper yeah. than that. What police also learned was that before killing the Bryants, Gary left North Carolina, driving south into Georgia. He stopped to set up camp on a private hunting preserve in Cherokee County, and a local noticed Gary and thought that something was off about him and was weird, and they were like, you can't just camp here. People are hunting. You're going to be shot. shot. And this person called police to make the complaint, so a deputy drove out to kick Gary Hilton off that property. When the deputy got there, he ran Gary's license through a state database. It came back as having no outstanding warrants in Georgia. But at the time, there was no requirement that the license had to be run through a federal database. Oh. Yeah. So Gary wasn't caught. Like, he wasn't run through that federal. He could have been easily so caught. However, if Gary Hilton's license had been checked at the federal level, the deputy would have caught his outstanding warrant for an unanswered citation from 2005, and Gary would have been arrested, and Jack and Irene Bryant would still be alive today. And I'm not saying that that's that deputy's fault. Obviously, no, it's not a requirement. No, but it's just like a frustrating thing because yeah. it's like you people, you, like everyone will point the finger at you. Yeah. It's very frustrating. But. Investigators learned that Gary had killed Irene right off the bat and threw Jack into his van. He'd driven Jack to the Nantahala National Forest where he intimidated and tortured him for his ATM pin number. 
and then Gary shot him in the head with a 22 Magnum firearm. Later that night, Gary had taken Jack's debit card and withdrew the $300. $300 is it. Yep. So, with the Georgia deal signed on Meredith Emerson's case, the question then became, who would next indict Gary Hilton? Florida or the federal government? Cheryl Dunlap had been killed on federal land, so the federal government could actually make the case and take it, or Florida could take it. While those two were going back and forth on who would try and indict Gary, Gary said, quote, well, Florida does have a fast track on the death penalty, doesn't it? And he started laughing. Gary knew that from 1976 to 2007, the federal government had executed just three people on capital murder charges. In that same time period, Florida had put 64 people to death averaging two a year holy crap so florida's just ricking them out yeah and gary was hoping that he'd be tried on federal because they wouldn't really try you they wouldn't sentence you to death dude's not stupid no how they linked gary hilton to cheryl dunlap is the bayonet that was used to both kill cheryl dunlap and slash her tires that bayonet was found on blood mountain when he ditched items on the way down there was also blood found hidden deep in the aglets of Gary's shoelaces. That was a match to the DNA on Gary's toothbrush, or on Cheryl's toothbrush. Well, how did he do that? That's impressive. That's what? pretty cool. To find it in the shoelet. In the aglet of aglet, the shoelace. Yeah, the yeah. Shoe, yeah. Science is crazy. Science rules. Thanks, Bill Nye. And Gary Hilton's rules. Yeah, he sucks. Major. Okay. Gary Hilton, I'm not going to let you finish that sentence. Gary Hilton was indicted for Cheryl Dunlap's murder on February 28th, 2008. And on the ride from Georgia to Florida, Gary said some things. He was on a recording for the entire eight-hour ride, which God bless those police officers that had to ride with him. One of the things he said was, quote, I'm not all bad. I mean, you got to understand. I mean, I'm sure you can see. I'm a fucking genius, man. I'm not a... I'm not all bad. I just lost my mind for a little bit. Lost a grip on myself, man. FBI and everyone else is trying to scratch their heads. Hey, guys, don't get started doing my shit at 61 years old. It just don't happen, you know? He's very cocky. But he's also saying, hey, guys, I didn't just start doing this at 61 years old. That doesn't just happen. So now police are like, please, man. Please, no, man. Don't tell us you have more victims out there, man. He then goes on to say, quote, there's a retired FBI named Clifford Vansant that keeps getting himself in the news talking about me. And he said, this guy didn't just fall off the turnip truck. He said, you know, in other words, he's been doing this. But like I told you before, you know, when I saw you before, I said, remember, I said, I'll give you one for free. Nothing before September, okay? I'm not joking, okay? I just got old and sick and couldn't make a living and lost. Fault lost my fucking mind for a while man i just couldn't get a grip on it so police at this point are like we have no idea if there's actually more victims that we need to find which spoiler they do believe there's more victims for gary yeah, i'm gonna assume but he's also saying that he lost his mind and started to do it so they're like we have no idea really what to believe here but we need you to stop talking because please it's an shut up ride. yeah with cheryl's case dr anthony falsetti looked at the bones found in the burn pile they believed those to be Cheryl Dunlap's bones, those hands and her skull. Hands? Yeah. He said that there were several cut marks found on the vertebrae that would indicate a sharp object used post-mortem for the decapitation. Gary Michael Hilton was found guilty of Cheryl Dunlap's murder and was sentenced to death in Florida in 2011. 
Gary was then overheard in jail by a correctional officer talking about how he was only sorry that he got caught, not that he actually committed the crime. He also mentioned that he'd spent a couple days with Cheryl, and as he kept her alive, and if he got the chance to do it again, he would do it right this time. I don't find that shocking. I feel no, like, I don't think he only got caught. Yeah. He never once apologized for any no. of it. He was laughing in the interrogation. And it's funny because people were like, oh my God, he's still not sorry. Anybody who's truly sorry would never decapitate and murder somebody in the first place. Like, Yeah, it, he's like, just, that guy was just, never going yeah. to be sorry. And I honestly, I don't care if you are. It, that no, means you nothing. still did it. Yeah. yeah. In 2011, Gary Hilton was indicted in North Carolina for the murder, kidnapping, and robbery of Jack and Irene Bryant. Gary admitted to killing Irene Bryant, and in 2012, Gary pleaded guilty to all of the charges. And this is what was said in court. Quote, In the month of October 2007, Gary Hilton was living in his Chevrolet Astro van in the Pisgah National Forest. On October 21, 2007, Jack and I- John and Irene Bryant encountered Gary Hilton while hiking in the National Forest. Irene was attacked and killed. Her body was later discovered near where they parked their car. John was kidnapped by Gary Hilton and was forced to provide his bank ATM PIN number. Gary Hilton then took John to his van and took him to the Nantahala National Forest and shot him in the head with a 22 Magnum firearm. On October 22, 2007, at about 7.37 p.m., Gary Hilton used the Bryant's ATM card in Ducktown, Tennessee to withdraw $300. Photos from the bank's security cameras show a slender person wearing a yellow raincoat covering his face. At the sentencing hearing, Holly Bryant said, quote, He will spend the rest of his life and die in a cage or at the hands of a Florida executioner. But the main thing, he will never get out to harm anyone again. For him to laughingly say he's sorry is a slap in the face. He beat my mother in the head and he shot my father in the head. Sorry is not enough. The Bryant's son, Bob, said, quote, I wanted a bullet in his head and I think that they should have done it five years ago. Oh, yeah. I mean, honestly, that's how I'd react if that was my parents. Yeah. Gary Michael Hilton was sentenced to four life sentences without the possibility of parole in North Carolina on April 25th, 2013. He winked at the courtroom as he was led away. Of course he did. But I like that Georgia, Florida, and North Carolina, because sometimes if somebody gets sentenced to death row, the other states are like, well, there's really no point because like he's going to die anyways. These states were like, absolutely not. No, you're going through a full trial. For all of them. Yeah. Gary is currently sitting on death row in the Sunshine State. The judge has delayed his death date and his appeals because he's been appealing his outcome in North Carolina and Georgia. Then, in 2006, the Supreme Court declared Florida's death penalty law unconstitutional, which made his sentence get pushed no back No way, of course, yeah. yeah. Actually, today, I thought this was an interesting tidbit. Today, as of April 23rd, Florida has the lowest threshold for getting sentenced the death penalty in the United States. Typically, it's a unanimous, all 12 jurors have to agree. In Florida, it's now 8 to 4. You only need... Holy shit. You only need 8 people to vote yes to death. Oh my god, that's nuts. That's pretty wild. When I read that, I was like, oh my my, lord. Yeah, that's pretty wild. Which, like, if you would be... Your, your trial for death would be like you've done something horrific. I know, but, but imagine if you're like, innocent. If you're innocent. Just imagine. Yeah. Oh yeah. my god. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, weird little fact. Gary's lawyer, Samuel Ryle, had known Gary for a long, long time and had represented Gary back in the golden age of petty crime in the 90s. Oh. Well, Samuel Ryle was an amateur filmmaker at this time. 
Gary wanted to be a star. And he was like, oh, Samuel, I can help you come up with some ideas for a film. And so Sam's like, oh, okay, yeah, like lay them on me. I, I would love to hear your film ideas. Gary told him that he envisioned a horror film where a beautiful woman was running in the forest and a man runs her down and kills her. Oh, okay. And then Gary brought that to life. He sure did. He made it a movie. Which is very scary. So another interesting tidbit, a man named Fred Rawson was trying to contact the Georgia Bureau of Investigations during Meredith Emerson's investigation, trying to get photos of Meredith's crime scene. Police learned that this guy was a reporter for Hustler Magazine. Hustler Magazine is like a Playboy type magazine. I didn't know that and I looked this up on my work computer. So if you're from my work and now you got a flag, I'm so sorry. I am sheltered, okay? There wasn't a law in Georgia during this time that prohibited or protected crime scene photos for being no released. No way, really. Yeah. That's crazy. There was there was a law that prevented the distribution of autopsy photos. So her lawyers and the police were really banking on that. Basically, the police got in contact with David Ralston, who was the Speaker of Georgia's House of Representatives during this time. They got a new law created immediately. Really? Yeah. And the Emerson family even helped the FBI and the GBI from releasing the photos, which they didn't want to do. But obviously, like, the police need a valid reason to not. Yeah. So on March 29th, 2010, the Meredith Emerson Memorial Privacy Act was signed into law, which basically states that open crime scene photos cannot be distributed or printed in media without a judge's signature. Nice. I don't even understand that. Is how like is that so not like weird? Yeah, how was that not already a signed thing? But you're also like, isn't that privacy? Yes, and also, do you have any respect? Like, you're gonna print somebody's crime scene photos of a headless. And like, imagine if that was your daughter. Yeah, your and you're son. gonna print someone's headless body in a Playboy magazine. Are you kidding me? Yep. I would. I don't even. If I were her parents, I think I would drive to this person's house and. Well, because of them, though, you can't now. Exactly. So thank and it was you. only in 2010. I know. I know. So there's also a trail that's been named in Meredith's honor, a hiking trail. And the Right to Hike is basically the organization that Meredith's family and friends have started. And it's raised money to help install emergency phone units in Georgia's national parks since there's no cell service there. Nice. And there's been 15 GPS units that have been distributed so that folks out there can get signals quicker and be found easier if they're lost. There's also a scholarship in Meredith's name at the University of Georgia, and it helps students travel abroad to France because that's where Meredith wanted to go teach English after college. Oh, that's cute. So Gary Hilton is still on death row in Florida, and he has been deemed the National Park serial killer. And all for what, $300, $700? You couldn't just rob him? I know. Like, what is the... $300 you're just killing people over? I think what's... So gross. I think what's crazy is any of the people that he killed would have given him money if they needed help. That's what I'm saying. If, like, you just beat them, you literally beat a guy to a pulp for a pin number. When in reality, he probably would have just given you money. He probably would have been like, what do you need? Yes. Like, what can I help you with? It's so weird. And you could have robbed so many... Most of the time, people on hikes don't have cash. Yeah, that's... that's Or they don't... They're not holding a bunch of stuff on them. So, like... It's just so weird that you went to these places, thought you were going to get a ton of money, killed them, and then you got $300 for their lives? 
Like, that was it? It's interesting, too, because he just wanted the ATM cards. I know. He's so weird. Like he, was, he just is not all there. He was just not all He there. didn't take credit cards. He wanted hard cash, which nobody anymore carries hard cash. He's just so weird. He He's sucks. Yeah. He's horrible. He's a horrible person. Horrible person. But that was the case of Gary Michael Hilton. Well, you suck, Gary, and I think the other people, that all, all four of them that passed away, that's sad, and I'll rest in peace. I know. I think it's scary too because hiking is really an easy place, like where you are so vulnerable. Because Especially there's when no we service. Went, it was raining. Yeah. No one's out there. You can't hear much because the rain like emphasizes like takes up a lot of the noise. But even still, like rain or no rain, it's a very vulnerable situation because you're out in the woods with no cell service, with nothing around. I know. You I love hiking. For, you did that for like yeah. Eight days. Chase is thank you so much. Lay it on me. Yeah. Twelve days. Yeah. Thank you so much. Twelve days. I did not hear from you. Your girl's a big hiker. Twelve days. Okay. Everybody makes mistakes. Yeah. Everyone has, has those, those days. days. How about twelve of them? <laughs> yes. She's literally on here preaching to you guys about it while she did it herself. Okay, but I also I carry pepper spray. I carry a knife. Doesn't matter if no one knows where you are. Facts. Mm-hmm. Facts. Yeah. That wasn't my... Like if the police came to my house and said, well, where's the last time you, you knew she saw her? Um, somewhere in California. Good luck. Okay, so that's... All right, the everybody. Episode. This episode is done. Um, I don't think there'll be a bonus this week. Yeah, because we're going to take a time to chill and relax. Yeah, we have she... to go um, look at some places this <sighs> weekend. Ooh to see where we'll be living next so i just i don't have any time to research a bonus episode but i hope you can forgive me i'm gonna do as many as i can this summer because i get some extra time off of work and i'm gonna put it into this podcast and she's a little nervy because we're getting our first place together we are i know she's so she's blushing right now I'm scared. She's nervous. Oh, my God. Because now she's going to be living with a man. With a man. With a man. Okay. So if you want to follow us on Instagram, you can follow us at... Crime with a K. If you want to send us a case, you can send it to... Crime with a K at gmail.com. Or you can send it to our Instagram. And crime with a K. Crime with a K. Or if you want to follow us on TikTok, you can follow us at... Crime with a K. Another than that. We will see you next week with another amazing episode with Chase and Kelsey. Bye. Bye.